This episode of the Bowery Boys is brought to you by Burrows of the Dead, a boutique tour company devoted to strange, dark, and unusual walking tours of New York City. They provide in-depth, meticulously researched tours throughout the boroughs, offering haunted historical walks in Manhattan, Brooklyn, the Bronx, and Queens. And they now have tours on Roosevelt Island. If you head over to boroughsofthedead.com, you'll still find a few tickets left for this Halloween season, including tours in Brooklyn Heights, Astoria, Lower Manhattan, and Greenwich Village on All Souls Day. But the great thing about Burrows of the Dead is that they operate year-round and they offer gift certificates. So no matter where you live in New York or if you're coming from out of town, you can always take an amazing Burrows of the Dead tour. For tickets, head to burrowsofthedead.com and use offer code BOWERY, B-O-W-E-R-Y, for $5 off any regular Burrows of the Dead public walking tour through December 31st, 2017. Episode 240 of the Bowery Boys, The Ghosts of Greenwich Village. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And welcome to the show where we put on our dramatic voices. It's the Bowery Boys annual Halloween special for 2017, where we weave tales of haunted houses and spooky spirits into actual New York City history and using well-known urban legends. In many cases, we'll even take these stories from actual newspaper reports. And as regular listeners will know, uh, we usually focus on a certain theme or neighborhood or era. Mm-hmm. Well, this year, we decided to go straight to the village, to Greenwich Village, to see if we could scare up some spirits or ghouls or ghosts. Some, some may call it the village of the damned. The setting of most of the stories on this show will take place in a neighborhood that's often considered shady and rather cozy. With its unusual streets, its tawny-leafed sidewalks, and old townhouses with mysterious histories. And as always, Greg Young has really gotten into decorating the studio for our annual Ghost Stories episode. Well, yes, yeah, so there's, I kind of overdid it. There's at least four or five strings of gothic-looking lights. There mm-hmm. are some dried corns now here. Yo, dried when corns. did you dry corn? <laughs> Dried corns. I have, look, I have a pumpkin with a whimsical face painted on it. Very, very whimsical. Whimsical indeed. Some peeps. Some some Halloween peeps. Pumpkin peeps. And I I also brought up, uh, actually, a bag of um, chocolates, Greg. Oh, for the Um, trick-or-treaters. For the trick-or-treaters. Well, we're going to dig into those candies, probably while we tell you, listener, for spellbinding stories of... Ghosts, spooks, and mysterious behaviors in old Greenwich Village.
Well, Greg, to kick things off, I thought I'd start with some everyday creepiness. You know, something that seems so, well, seemingly normal Mm -hmm. that we walk by daily without even really giving it a second thought. Because in the village, within just a few minutes' walk of each other, uh, you can visit the final resting place of thousands of New Yorkers from long ago. But you'd never really know it or think twice because so much life is happening above ground there that what's happening underground has largely been forgotten. Underground? Do you mean like the subway, for instance? Uh, No, not the subway. Greg, I'm talking about the forgotten graveyards of Greenwich Village. Hmm. When most people think about the village, their thoughts go straight to Washington Square Park, which is probably the city's second most famous park after Central Park. And you and I spent a lot of time there yesterday, actually, wandering around, you know, mm-hmm. wandering around its winding pathways. Uh, we, we went past hundreds of students and, and workers who were on lunch breaks. Well, there's, there's dozens of, of street performers and other sort of odd bodkins around. Like the man we saw in a cage. Mm-hmm. And all of them were having a gay old time on a sunny October breezy afternoon. Probably none of them were aware of the fact that they were lounging atop the graves of thousands of New Yorkers. And also, probably few who enter the, the park today notice the old majestic elm tree that anchors the park's northwest corner. Uh, it towers over chess players, you know, who rarely look up at its gnarled branches and who could never really imagine that it was perhaps here, from these very branches, that some unfortunate souls would hang to their death. So much going on already here in this, in this tale. Where are we going with this? Well, Greg, this is the story of what floats over Washington Square. Now, Manhattan's oldest living resident, is an English elm tree that watches over the northwest corner of Washington Square Park. It's believed to have sprouted sometime around 1678, well before there was a park here or even a Greenwich Village. 1678, well, that's before there was just barely a New York. It was only a a, a few years old, and it was before there was obviously a United States. So this is an old tree. And for centuries, uh, this tree, which has been nicknamed the hangman's elm, or the hanging tree, has been the subject of mystery and urban legend. Its branches, um, they say, were used for public hangings, or its, its roots run thick with blood. Now, when this elm was but a small sapling, the Mineta Creek, which was home to fish of all sorts, ambled by just east of it. It, it twisted its way through the fields and farmland all around here, It was quite a stream. It started about a mile north of here. Uh, You know, two different bodies of water converged into one, and it cut down through around today's park, if you can imagine, somewhere around, you know, between 5th and 6th Avenues, if you cut Mm -hmm. down there. So it's the the western section of the park. So the village, on top of having, by this time, farmland and all that, actually had a body of water flowing through it. Yes, this Mineta Creek or Mineta Brook, which was a pretty decent creek. It continued down through today's park, and then it veered off uh, to the west and emptied out into the North River, or the Hudson River. Uh, And uh, and interestingly, today's Mineta Street 
that's buried in the village, uh, follows that hook of the stream. The street was laid out around the creek. But in 1797, this old elm tree, now all grown up, looked down upon the stream and just east of the stream, upon New York's largest potter's field. Kind of like a cemetery, but for poor people. And for those who died during plagues or mass illnesses. That's right. And remember that at this time, in the end of the 1700s, you know, the city was far south of here. But when there would be a major outbreak, like in 1797, when there was a big yellow fever outbreak, they wanted to get people who had died of it outside of the city boundaries and away from others for fear of infecting others. So they buried them along with the poorest residents who had nowhere else to be buried in potter's fields. And so by November of 1797, this area east of the stream had been transformed into a burial ground. It's so hard to imagine this, not only all of this nature, but that the area itself would have such a macabre purpose. How long did this serve as a potter's field? Well, for 28 years. And this field would see the burial of more than 20,000 bodies, most of them poor and, and most of them buried in nameless graves. Now, because this was a rather undesirable piece of land, it, it also attracted more than its share of mischief. Um, even duels would be fought here, and public executions. By the early 1800s, the, the tree now was more than a century old. It was rather robust and distinguished. But at some point around this period, rumors began to cling to its branches. Rumors of a notorious past. The tree's nickname is the hangman's elm. But were actual hangings performed here? Were there actual executions here on the spot? There's at least one documented hanging in the potter's field, which took place in 1819. It was an execution of a young woman named Rose Butler, who had been convicted of arson. But it's thought that she was actually hung in gallows uh, that were east of here not actually from the limbs of the elm tree, yet these rumors persisted. Now, by the 1820s, the city, you know, was growing south of here, and it saw Greenwich Village as an ideal candidate for new development. So in 1826, this potter's field was turned into a military parade ground, and it was named for George Washington in commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. So obviously burials would stop here because now it's a parade ground. Right, and the burials would continue farther uptown around 42nd Street and 6th Avenue, which is today's Bryant Park. That would become the new Potter's Field. Okay, I got that, I think. But meanwhile, there were people still buried under the parade ground. Like, they didn't exhume these people, right? There were about... 20,000 people, yes, and no, they would be left untouched. There would be extravagant federal-style homes built around the park, and many of those still exist on the northern side of the park today. Within 10 years, uh, the residents of the area had gone from the city's most impoverished to its wealthiest. And soon after, in, in 1849 to 1850, that military parade ground would be redeveloped into an actual park, Washington Square Park. And amazingly, that must have included the elm tree, which was included into the park. 
Yes, it was fenced off and in it became the the oldest original resident of Washington Square. Several decades later in 1889, a grand arch would be constructed, first a temporary structure made of plaster, but then the present marble masterpiece in 1892. But during the construction of that arch, workers who were digging 10 feet underground came across something disturbing. Digging in the soil, their shovels hit upon something hard. They excavated the dirt. They pulled it away to find a coffin. They dug further. They found a tombstone and human remains. They had come across the original residence of Washington Square. And this certainly wouldn't be the last time that the permanent residents of Washington Square would fight back against those who were working the ground above them. It seems like every time that the park would undergo major renovations and redevelopment, workers would come across reminders of these residents. Even recently, in 2008, people who were just testing the soil in the park uh, came across four skeletons. And even more recently, Greg, just two years ago in 2015, a crew who was digging for a water main just east of the park hit upon two stone burial vaults with arched ceilings, one containing the skeletal remains of 10 people and the other containing nearly 20 coffins. And then there are those pesky rumors. Those who have seen something that's hard to describe, floating about the park at night. It's said that, that there's something off, something, something ethereal. It's a kind of green fog, a, a green miasma that floats over the park at night, perhaps reminding us of the 20,000 souls who never left. So as children play as dogs run about in the little dog park, as people play chess, as college students gather to meet their friends and laugh and have a good time, underfoot lays a much darker story. Well, Tom, since we're tormenting college students, why don't I dig... Um, why don't I continue this theme by moving to a... NYU Residence Hall, up on 10th Street and Broadway. And this episode is clearly not brought to you by NYU. <laughs> no, but a great many NYU students know this story very, very well. well how do they know it? Uh, it is one of the great urban legends that is associated with the NYU campus. The name of this story is Little Molly wants to play. <laughs> oh my god, I'm reaching for a peep. <laughs> Grab your peeps. This story begins in late 1928 and early 1929 with the construction of the Brittany Hotel at 55 East 10th Street. So this is late jazz age. 55 East 10th, so just east of 5th Avenue. 
very close to the location that you just described. Now, this being the late Jazz Age, it opened as an apartment hotel, which means that people stayed for long periods of time, you know, basically kind of living there. You know, perhaps it was a little unusual to have something like this so far downtown from the uh, trendy apartment towers of Park Avenue, but the Britney was meant to appeal to certain types. What kind of types? Village types, bohemians, or, you know, Wall Street brokers who had an art collection. Oh, <laughs> that right. kind of thing. Village people. <laughs> the village people. And Tom Aid originally reflected the elegance, the grace of the most famous landmark in the vicinity. Can you guess what that is? The grace of a nearby structure. Wait, at 10th and Broadway? Mm-hmm. The Halloween store. <laughs> You're talking about the ho- that has the line. The big, big Halloween store is happens to be there. They've got a great magic department. They do, they do. But I said the Grace, meaning that actually, Grace Church. Grace Church is is right is right there. It's one of the most famous churches in New York. It was built in 1846. So the Britney was actually meant to kind of reflect some of that design. It had Gothic flourishes and an ornamental terracotta parapet. Sounds lovely. But during the construction of the building, something happened. Now, it's not well documented, but we know about it because of the disturbing things which would happen at the Brittany for many, many decades to come. Now, this has to do with an elevator that was newly installed in the building. This was, of course, the Jazz Age. Elevators are all the rage now in New York because it's the skyscraper boom. Wow, 1929. Yeah, skyscrapers are going up all over town Mm -hmm. um, because of elevators. Yeah, I mean, the Chrysler Building is on its way up. The Empire State Building will soon be rising over New York City. However, safety standards to doors and to these elevator cars were not quite what they are today. Thus, when you go through the newspaper clippings from the early 20th century, they're just filled with very grim stories of people who died by being crushed by elevators, passenger cars that plunged to the ground, or people who accidentally fell down elevator shafts. By 1928, there were many more precautions, of course, because there were way more buildings and taller buildings, but not everybody followed the rules. Which takes us back to the construction of the Brittany. We don't know how this incident happened, but at some point, a door was left open. Perhaps this child was belonged to someone who was working in the building. But a young girl named Molly, she entered the building. She was a very spunky child. She began wandering through this great unfinished hotel. You can imagine the wonder in her eyes as she weaved in and out through all these barren rooms and peeked out from the unfinished windows to Grace Church below. She explored many rooms in the future hotel. She ran down hallways and all the while she kept climbing up the stairs until the 16th floor. Now she had with her her companions, her dolls. So when she was up there on the 16th floor, she arrayed her dolls along the hallway and she just began skipping and playing around with her dolls skipping merrily up and down the barren floor with not a care in the world but at the end of the hallway was a large black void space where an elevator was to be installed 
Well, naturally curious, Molly went over to peek into this dark elevator shaft, wondering what she might see if she kept looking down below, maybe like a flicker of light or something. She leaned over further and further, and suddenly she lost her balance. There on the 16th floor, her dolls were scattered on the floor, never again to be played with by their young owner. Little Molly might have died that day, but she wasn't finished playing. What a sad and disturbing story. And you said, though, that this is today a dormitory? Yes. Well, the Brittany as a hotel quickly faded from glory as a, as a trendy place to stay. It was, became rather common and unspectacular for a hotel. By the 1940s, I saw an ad in the newspaper, actually, that described it as a transient hotel, albeit one of distinction. Quote, this first class hotel slightly off the beaten path and beaten path is in quotes, the beaten path have a few desirable rooms reserved for out of town guests. By the mid 1960s, the building was purchased by New York University for use as a dormitory. Right, because by this point, NYU was expanding. They were looking for more lodgings Mm -hmm. for their students. So they bought up this old apartment hotel. But were were there still residents living here? Believe it or not, there were still people living here who had contracts to stay. By 1974, there were still three elderly women who still lived here. And there was a huge scandal that year because NYU, via the State Dormitory Authority, evicted these ladies. To the protests, I should say, this is pretty cool, to the protests of the students who are actually living there. They were fighting for these old ladies to stay. Well, one of the women who eventually got evicted was quoted as saying, it's very hard to pull up roots after 43 years, but maybe it's about time. But while the human residents of the old Hotel Brittany had at last been replaced with this revolving door of college students, The ghostly resident of the Brittany was just waking up. For the entire history of the Brittany's existence in the NYU system, students and faculty members have reported dozens of unexplained events. So many, in fact, that older students frequently recount tales to young freshmen, you know, to scare them, of course, and to warn them. What are they seeing? What's happening? Well, students have reported flickering lights, knocking about the walls. Late at night, a student will be asleep in a dorm room when someone will loudly rap upon the door. When a student then gets up, you know, to see who it is, opens the door, they'll look down the hall, but no one will be there. There have also been frequent reports of a gentle humming, and on occasion, the distant giggle of a young girl, almost as though she were trapped behind the very walls. Now, what's curious about a ghost like Molly is that she's actually attracted to groups, to young people who are enjoying themselves, and often to young women, usually one or a group of young women. It's almost like living for years with elderly people in the building. Now, here are young adults fresh and out of high school, perhaps Molly would like to play. There are so many sightings of Molly at Brittany Residence Hall that older students have a secret 
and actually how to deal with Molly. And indeed, it's the only way to keep her away from you. Students say that she will stop bothering you if you actually have a little bravery and give Molly back a little attitude. You know, this is a ghost of a little girl. This is not a monster. She's not aware that her spectral form might be frightening to others. So freshmen out there who are listening, when you see or experience Molly, you must say the following words. Don't play with me, Molly. It should be noted, however, that this will banish the ghostly girl for that evening alone, for she may come back to visit you the following night. So wait, are you saying that her presence is still there? Is is she still being felt today? There are still reports, very, very recent reports of strange goings on that are attributed to the ghost of this young girl. There had been so many reports that in 2005, a paranormal investigative team did a sweep of the Brittany. They reported, though, that there was no direct ghostly presence here. There was plenty of faulty wiring and of very thin walls, and all of that was combined with what they described as, quote, disturbed residual energy, which, like a film strip, reactivates once in a while, unquote. Meaning that, like, there is so, there's such a large number of stressed out people in one place that there's a sort of energy that is awoken, and you combine that with uh, the, the building's age, and that that creates what many people believe to be an actual supernatural entity. You mean that these freshmen are actually so stressed out that they're freaking <laughs> each other out? Yes. But, but I think that this team would never have found evidence of Molly. Molly would never have made herself known to a, a paranormal investigation team, a crew that was purporting to debunk ghostly theories. Because after all, where's the fun in that? Wow, that is a really disturbing story. And sad, admittedly very sad, but a famous ghost story. Uh, You know, I would say certainly one of the most famous ghost stories of the village, if not the most famous. For our next two stories, we're going west. They will both take place in the West Village. We'll get to those two ghostly tales after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, 
slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Now, Greg, I started the show with our tale of Washington Square Park and of its grave history. But yesterday, we walked from Washington Square Park to another park just west of there. And this second park, so popular today, also has a most disturbing history that too often gets buried. Until now. For this is the tale of... Who's digging in St. John's Cemetery? Now, this second park, uh, we actually mentioned in a recent episode on Jimmy Walker, uh, New York's playboy mayor, or the the fun-loving nightlife-crazed mayor of the Roaring Twenties. As we discussed, uh, Jimmy was born and raised in the village and spent most of his childhood and most of his adult life in the family house at number six, St. Luke's Place, which is also known as Leroy Street. Um, And that's between Hudson and 7th Avenue, just a couple blocks north of Houston Street. Now, Jimmy was born in 1881, and by those final decades of the 19th century, the plot of land just across the street from his house here at St. Luke's Place was a very crowded cemetery called the St. John's Burying Ground. Starting in 1815, St. John's Chapel of the Trinity, which was located nearby, buried their dead here in the cemetery. An old burial ground. How interesting. Were there, were there a lot of plots here? Were there a lot of people buried in the spot? There were about... 10,000 people buried here, many from the neighborhood who would find their final resting place right here, but many others who had died during different outbreaks, just like over at Washington Square Park. You know, there, there were cholera outbreaks, yellow fever outbreaks. By the 1880s, the graveyard was crowded with tombstones. The plot isn't that large, so you can just imagine how things got really cramped. There were wealthy people buried here, poor people buried here in unmarked graves. 
It was a moody place, and it's even said that Edgar Allan Poe used to wander through the graveyards and find macabre inspiration uh, when he lived nearby on Carmine Street. Children, too, would use the graveyard as a kind of makeshift playground. Even young Jimmy Walker, future mayor, who lived across the street, he would play ball and hide and seek among the tombstones. So how long was this area a cemetery? Well, by the end of the 19th century, the city had started building actual parks for children so that kids didn't need to hang out in graveyards. Although for a certain child, there is a great appeal to playing around in graveyards, but it's best to give them a proper place for recreation. You mean like one who obsessively decorates a studio every year for Halloween shows? (laughs) One who does an annual Halloween show? Yeah. Ghost stories? Yes, perhaps. For instance... So the city acquired the land in 1895, and an actual park was laid out, designed by Carrera and Hastings, who just two years later would win the design competition for the new New York Public Library building up on 42nd Street. Walks and promenades were added. There was a playground for children uh, constructed, and a, a large lake was dug, and, and the space was given the cheery name Hudson Park. Wow, that's like quite a change to the neighborhood here, like a lake. Where did the actual bodies go? Where did the burial ground go? They were still there. Now, this was a part of the parish of Trinity Church, and Trinity did advertise in the papers that their cemetery would be converted into a park and that families could move their loved ones. But of course, you know, information didn't move like it does today, and you would have had to have known about this or have seen it in the newspaper. And you'd also have to, you know, have the wherewithal and be able to pay to move the body. So all of that was very problematic, not to mention that many people found the thought of moving a buried body to be a sacrilege. Here's an article I found uh, from the New York Times published on November 16th, 1896, under the headline, Respite for the Dead, St. John's Cemetery, not yet to be changed to a park. The work of converting the old St. John's Cemetery at Hudson and Clarkson Streets into a public park, which was to have commenced today, will be delayed owing to the lateness of the season, and it is not probable that much will be done before next spring. The time allowed for the removal of the bodies will also be extended by the park commissioner from last Saturday, at which time at which time only a few removals had been effected, to December 1st. So they were giving people more time. It also describes how the entire area had become kind of a dumping ground for the tenement buildings that lined uh, the perimeter of the, of the burial ground. It says, Out of the windows of these tenement houses and upon the forgotten graves beneath have been thrown all sorts of rubbish and the kitchen garbage, tin cans, beer bottles, and cast-off wearing apparel. Many headstones are broken off and lie prone upon the ground, while there are very few which have not tilted from the perpendicular. There is a monument, the most pretentious one in the plot, erected by friends and members of the Fire Engine Company Number 150 to the memory of Eugene Underhill and Frederick Ward, who lost their lives by the falling of a 
building while engaged in the discharge of their duties as firemen, July 1st, 1834. Some of the old volunteer firemen are anxious to have this monument retained in its present place and position after the cemetery has been converted into a park, and it is probable that such will be the action of the commissioners. So they could move some of the bodies, at least. How many were eventually reinterred? Of the 10,000 who were buried there, it's estimated that only about 100 bodies were actually moved. Instead, the construction crews who were making the park ended up breaking up the remaining tombstones and, and using them as fill for the land, for the redevelopment. And they buried everything that they found only about two feet beneath the surface of the park. While they were digging the park's lake, workers naturally came across bones, which were collected together and and placed underneath the park's public shelter area, which contained the bathrooms and the bandstand. It's interesting because Jimmy Walker, who lived across the street and grew up here and played around the tombstones when he was a kid, was a young man working in Tin Pan Alley by the time it was transformed into a park. And just a couple decades later in the 1940s, the city would rename this new park from Hudson Park after the mayor who grew up across the street and name it James J. Walker Park. And it would be further redeveloped in the 20th century to what it is today with a giant ball field and a big playground, a public swimming pool, even a bocce court. It's very bustling and busy to this day, all over the place, every single corner of the park. There's hardly any reminder that this park stands atop an old cemetery. Hardly any reminder, for there is still one large monument to the past. It seems that those old firemen succeeded in keeping the old tomb to their fallen brethren. For there it still stands today. It's been moved from the center of the cemetery over toward Leroy Street, St. Saint, Saint Luke's Place, very near the sidewalk where hundreds of people walk every day, never giving it a thought. But if you walk by on a dark, moonless night and stare off through the trees at the large ball field that occupies most of the park. Take all of that away in your mind and and peer out across the space and imagine how it stood for nearly a century. Imagine the crumbling tombstones, the lonesome neighborhood poet wandering amidst the final resting place of 10,000 souls. So no ghosts? (laughs) No, the the ghosts are over at Washington Square Park, you know, with the green miasma. Anyway, it's time for a drink. Now, I was originally going to sum up our Greenwich Village ghost stories here with perhaps one of the most famous tales, which is that of the White Horse Tavern, which is haunted by the ghost of the famed author Dylan Thomas. And just up Hudson Street here from this from this former graveyard. Just a few blocks. The White Horse opened as a longshoreman's bar in 1880 and later became like a major bar for literary talents like Jack Kerouac, James Baldwin, and Norman Mailer, and of course, Dylan Thomas, who drank himself here into oblivion one night in 1953, then went back to the Chelsea Hotel, got very sick, and died a few days later. 
His ghost, they say, is frequently seen here at the White Horse Tavern. A jovial spirit, still enjoying spirits at his favorite table. Finally, we're telling the Dylan Thomas ghost story. Well, I was planning on elaborating further onto this until I discovered in my research a forgotten tale of haunted West Village, a story that occurs just a few blocks away from the White Horse Tavern. And a story I've not been able to shake, to be honest, since I've discovered it. One that's haunted me for the past few days. I've been wondering why you've been so pale. Well, we will save Mr. Thomas for another time, as I turn my attention to a somber story of Haunted Bank Street, or a tale that I like to call The Thing in the Ceiling. The address I'll be focusing on for our final story is 11 Bank Street, which is a beautiful red brick structure between Greenwich Avenue and West 4th Street. That is such a beautiful part of the West Village and so confusing. How does West (laughs) 4th Street get up there? Well, that's for another show, but it's true that you just don't get much more beautiful than Bank Street with its stunning row of townhouses and tree-lined blocks. The street got its name in 1798, back when Greenwich Village was an actual village. As you mentioned in the very first show, there were yellow fever epidemics where people were escaping up to this area. Well, one company that escaped up here was the Bank of New York. They actually bought several plots up here in the year 1798. And it's because of the Bank of New York that the street is called Bank Street. Uh Uh-huh. Now, Eleven Bank was built in the 1830s. And it's a very handsome townhouse and resembles many other buildings on the block. Willa Cather and Patricia Highsmith both lived on this block at one point, and it was here at 11 Bank Street in 1925 that the author John Despassos worked on his book, Manhattan Transfer. However, tragedy hit this address in 1928. Let me read you a clip from the New York Times from November 8th, 1928. Mrs. Nettie A. Pellet, 54 years old, was burned to death yesterday afternoon in a fire which destroyed the rooming house in which she occupied a third-floor room at 11 Bank Street. Neighbors saw Mrs. Pellet come to the window of her room at the front of the house and call back for help. But when the firemen had the fire sufficiently under control to reach the room of Mrs. Pellet, they found her dying, and she died on the way to St. Vincent Hospital. Now let's fast forward to September of 1956. Now, around this time, a lot of artists are taking these old boarding houses and they are buying the whole building and renovating them into one-family houses. We've talked about this phenomenon happening in the village in the 60s and then later in Park Slope in the 60s. We talked about it in Soho. Mm -hmm. This house on Bank Street, 11 Bank Street, was purchased by a very interesting couple, a woman named Yefe Kimball Slayton, a woman who claimed to be of Osage Indian origin, who was an abstract expressionist painter of some renown during this period, creating works using abstract Native American motifs, and then later she got really into space exploration. Sounds trippy. Indeed. Her husband, who she moved in with, his name was Dr. Harvey Slayton. 
He was an atomic engineer who had secretly worked on the Manhattan Project in Los Alamos, New Mexico. Okay, wait. So this house on Bank Street is bought by an abstract expressionist and an atomic scientist. Yes, her husband who worked on the Manhattan Project in Los Alamos, New Mexico. This might be the most interesting couple in the world in 1956, uh, at least here on Bank Street, perhaps. But they were about to experience one of the most disturbing true stories I have ever read about. The following tale was reported in the New York Times on June 26th, 1957. The Slaytons, as you can imagine, moved in rather impressive artistic circles. They even had a second home in Provincetown and frequently hosted fun, quiet parties here at their Bank Street townhouse. It was a very lively place on a Friday night. Oh, I'm sure. The Times even described them as, quote, sensible bohemians. How condescending. (laughs) Well, shortly after they moved in and, you know, during these many parties that they would have, guests at their home began hearing gentle footfalls on the steep, creaky staircase between the floors. Occasionally, some would hear steps on the floor right above them, as though somebody else was in the home. On occasion, they would even hear a light knocking on the wall, but something that was a little uneven. Well, it could, it could have just been a pipe. You know, they make noise sometimes. But this was a lot more irregular. It didn't have the same sustained rapping sound that a pipe would. This was as though somebody was trying to get people's attention. Well, periodically, they would go to the second floor to investigate these sounds. But each time they ventured up the steep staircase... They would find no evidence of a person making this racket. And each time they would cry out, who's there? Who's there? But they would get no response. So this is in the 1950s. Had they renovated the house at all? They were in the process of it, actually. like They had started on the first couple floors, but those upper floors were still being worked on. Unless you may be inferring to the fact that maybe it was a carpenter that was making noises. Right, I mean, perhaps it was related to the renovations. Well, that would be a good guess, except the head carpenter who was renovating the house, a man named Arthur Brody, He was actually the first to even hear these sounds. He was an expert renovator and would certainly know if something was trapped in a wall somewhere. Well, one morning in February, Mr. Brody was on that top floor. Now, this was the same floor that many, many years earlier, this was where Miss Nellie Pellet had died in that fire. That was 1928. And this is three decades later in 1957. Right. Brody began work that morning by punching into the ceiling, hoping to renovate this room in the same manner as he had done the others. As he was pounding into the ceiling with his hammer, plaster and debris began hitting the floor and dust was dispersing throughout the room. He continued hammering and hammering into the ceiling, not seeing what he was hitting until he actually hit something hard, not a ceiling, it was an object in the ceiling. He reached into the dark hole and he felt a large cold metal can. He pulled it out into the light. The report that I had read said it was twice the size of the height of a metal coffee can. Remember those old metal coffee cans? So just imagine one that's double the size. 
of black metal, and there was something written on it. He read the marking, and he became deeply disturbed. He ran down to the first floor, to the Slayton's bedroom, and Yefe was there. She'd even heard that loud thump. It was so loud. So she asked Mr. Brody what was going on. Mr. Brody replied, It's me, ma'am. I'm leaving the job. I found the body. Yefe looked at the label on the can. It read, The last remains of Elizabeth Bullock, deceased. Cremated January 21st, 1931. The United States Crematory Company, Middle Village, Borough of Queens, New York City. When Dr. Clayton got home, the three of them ventured back up to the top floor, and they, they're shown a flashlight into the hole. But there were no more objects trapped within the ceiling. It was just this can. So, so wait, so this was the woman who had been burned in the fire? No, this is a different woman. This is a woman that seems to have no connection to 11 Bank Street. Most unusual is, at least to Arthur Brody, this this experienced renovator, it appeared that the ceiling had not been opened for at least 50 years, that it would have been physically impossible to place an object within that small space. Now, what we know, of course, is that fire had happened in 1925, but that doesn't really explain why this vessel from 1931 was in the ceiling. And what was the name of the woman that was um, written on the canister? Her name was Elizabeth Bullock. Who was she? Well, the Slaytons did check to see who she was. They called the crematory, uh, which, by the way, that company is still in business. Uh, they're now called the Fresh Pond Crematory in Middle Village, Queens. There had been a woman named Elizabeth Bullock who had indeed died in 1931 at age 51. She had been hit by a car on Hudson Street. Not far, in fact, from the White Horse Tavern. She even lived on the same block as the White Horse Tavern at the corner of Perry and Hudson. But weirdly enough, she had never had an association with 11 Bank Street. The Slaytons managed to track down the undertaker, the, the name of the undertaker, who also lived in the West Village on West 11th Street, which was not far from Bank Street. But by 1957, he was also dead. So what do you even do in that kind of situation? I mean, they, they're holding on to the remains of somebody. Mm -hmm. It's very unusual, right? Well, in the end... Whether this is a correct decision or not, I, you can, I leave it up to you, the listener. In the end, they decided to keep Mrs. Bullock, to showcase, if you will, Mrs. Bullock. They placed the canister or the urn, they placed it prominently in the house on top of their grand piano. I mean, we guess we could call it sort of macabre conversation piece here in the townhouse at 11 Bank Street. Well, it certainly beats being buried inside a wall. Sure, sure. And, you know, they weren't really being disrespectful. They kept looking for family members uh, throughout their tenure here for anyone, hoping that anyone would come and pick up the remains, hoping that one day someone would come by and ask for Mrs. Bullock. Well, is is that the end of the story? Not quite. Fast forward to the year 1981. May of 1981, in fact, almost 25 years later. 
The urn and Mrs. Bullock were still in the house. Now, Yefe Kimball Slayton had actually passed away in 1978. And so Mr. Slayton married another woman. Her name was Anne Catherine Pratt. Now, the following information is from a report in the Washington Post. Now, possibly at the insistence of Anne, they decided to hold a seance to figure out what was going on with Ms. Elizabeth Bullock. Okay. So imagine this townhouse, the ground floor, the curtains drawn, the lights down low, and Bullock's metal sarcophagus in the middle of the table with a medium who was here, who then claimed that the dead woman was not pleased. Now, instances of her banging around the house had actually diminished over the years so that, you know, it was, it was something that happened occasionally and, and was not as frightening as it used to be. The most dramatic thing that had happened in recent years was when Ms. Bullock threw open a closet door a rather ghostly gesture which spooked the guest. Mr. Slayton at that point, you know, no longer frightened by these sorts of things, simply said out loud, Oh, Elizabeth, go fix yourself a drink. But now here was this medium claiming that she was not at peace. Additionally, this medium actually professed to speak in the woman's own voice, an Irish brogue, and cried out, I want a Christian burial in the shade of the cross. Anywhere where the cross is. they But they know now that yes. she's not at peace and that she wants a proper burial. It seems like they need to, to do something. Now that they have this information, whether you believe in a medium or not, it seemed like it came to a realization that like what was the right thing to do was to finally give her a proper burial. Many of their friends even suggested burying her in the backyard. Eventually, however, a Catholic church in Northern California agreed to inter her remains in an old Irish Catholic cemetery at Table Bluff, just south of Eureka, California. The Slaytons had one final party, a party that was specifically in honor of Elizabeth Bullock. After a night of merriment, the Slaytons finally packed her in a box and shipped her to her final resting place. And how did the burial go? Well, many days later, the Slaytons actually received a letter from the priest who oversaw the burial ceremony. The letter read, quote, It was pouring down rain in the coastal Pacific fashion when we had the final rites in the cemetery. Her casket is buried beneath the shade of a cedar cross in an old plot. A stone will be set up in cement with the following information. Elizabeth Bullock died 1931 interred 1981. Before we put in the dirt, we placed a crucifix on top of her small casket. After the dirt was shoveled in place, some boys and girls aged 12 to 17 placed flowers on her grave. Mr. John Davey, our volunteer sexton and grave digger, has assured me that he will look after her grave from now on. And so, thousands of miles from home, the ghost of Bank Street has finally found peace. But did the Slaytons ever figure out why she had been placed inside the wall in the first place? Why there? 
It certainly wasn't reported. That remains an unsolved mystery. Well, that's a wrap. Check out the blog, Bowery Boys History, for creepy extra documentation of these supernatural events. There are 10 other shows that you can check out uh, for your spooky autumn season. Uh, mm-hmm. They'll also be in one big post on the blog right next to this one. So you could just like binge listen to all of these creepy New York City history stories to your heart's content. And we should also mention, Greg, that many of these stories, many of these ghost stories are also included in our book, The Bowery Boys Adventures in Old New York, that came out last year including my story of Washington Square Park and the Hangman's Elm. We'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who have joined us on patreon.com slash boweryboys. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash boweryboys. It's because of you and your support that Greg and I have been able to ramp up the production of the show and that we're able right now to come out with a new show every week. In fact, we'll be back in a week with another creepy tale just for the season. A mysterious story. In addition, for our Patreon supporters, we will have an extra ghost We will have an extra ghost story in your feed for next week, so check that out. So thank you, listener, for joining us on, for getting your spook on with us this season, this Halloween season. And thank you, Greg, for bringing along even new strings... Strings of lights and and haunted decor. And now it's time for us to finish this tray of Halloween peeps. <laughs> there's no, there's nothing like after after a long day of telling ghost stories. There's nothing like the taste of mass produced marshmallow fluff. What is that taste anyway? <laughs> I don't know. Well, thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. <laughs> <laughs>